Is it his time? Yes! Maybe. Yes, sir! From their little studio in South Africa, it's time for The Long and Short of It with Simon Hill and Dylan Rogers. A new year, the same two mugs behind the mic. Yep. Welcome to The Long and the Short of It. My name's Simon Hill. And I'm Dylan Rogers. And nice to be with you for the first time in 2021 as we talk all things golf. Yeah, so raring to go. Yeah, and today we kick off 2021 with a chat with one of South Africa's most well-known caddies. Ricky Roberts. He's been on Ernie's bag, well, on and off, as we'll find out, (laughs) for a very, very long time. And I think it's an interesting relationship, Science. Certainly the whole player-caddy relationship fascinates me. I mean, these guys spend so much time together and uh, and these caddies have unique insight into what these guys are like mm. and, and what makes them tick. And if you think of the great caddying partnerships of our time, you think of Tiger Woods and Stevie Williams. Yeah, um, Nick Felder and Fanny Sunnison. Phil Mickelson, Jim Mackay. Um, Tom Watson and Bruce Edwards. And Jack Nicholas and Angela Argia. You've got to kind of put... Ricky yeah. Roberts and Roberts Ernie Elster. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I mean they are—they're a pair. Yeah, not quite peas in a pod, but uh, maybe yeah. not a perfect pair. <laughs> but they're a pair. A pair all the same. And we caught up with Ricky Roberts to chat to him about his caddying career, as well as that interesting relationship with the Big Easy. The long and short of it. Yes! Well, when you think of great romances, what springs to mind? Brad and Angelina, Kate and Will, Diego Maradona and cocaine. <laughs> but if, if you don't put Ricky Roberts and Ernie Else into that category, then, well, not cocaine, but romances, then I think there's something wrong with no, you. You're because, missing a trick, yeah. Yeah, because this is a love story for the ages. Ricky's our guest on the long and the short of it today. Ricky, welcome to the podcast. It's wonderful to have you on. And I know there was a bit of toing and froing in the background. I'm glad we could finally connect. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We find you in the UK now. I understand that there have been one or two hiccups that you've been dealing with recently, uh, medically speaking. Can you bring us up to date there? Yeah, I just uh, had a slight problem with my legs locking up. So, I mean, I went to see a vascular surgeon in uh, Manchester. And uh, unfortunately, there's a slight narrowing of the arteries in my leg and one in the stomach. So I need to go and have... uh, a couple more stents inserted. I guess uh, the 36 years of carrying that bag around has taken its toll on me. <laughs> so, yeah, it will, uh, I'll go in on Saturday and it'll get sorted out. So. If that's the case, uh, Ricky, does, does, does that bill, that medical bill go straight to Ernie else? No, it doesn't. You're carrying your bloody bag for 36 years and now nah, look what's happened. <laughs> It's just part and parcel of the job, I think. Gee whiz. I mean, 36 years carrying golf bags. I, I wonder how many kilometers that is walked. Well, you know, that's funny you say something like that. Somebody asked me a couple of years ago, and uh, I think in one sort of full season, if I can remember correctly, somewhere around 202 or 204, it would have been like uh, going from Johannesburg to Cape Town and back twice in one year. She was. So that's 1,600 Ks roughly. So that's about 6,400 kilometers walked. Yeah. In one year. That's when they hit the ball straight. Yeah. (laughs) If you start playing army golf left and right, then it's even longer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, so we find you over in the, in the UK. Now, is that, is that where you live for most of the year? 
Well, I would say it's probably be my main base because it's easier for for me to travel. But uh, you know, I have a place out at Harder Piersport Dam, which I love dearly. And unfortunately, this year during this pandemic, I mean, I haven't been able to get there. I mean, I think the last time I was there was end of January, and uh, not been back since. Gee, yeah, that is a long time away from home. So you're based in the yeah. UK, uh, uh, Ricky, but um, you know right now that Ernie's on the on the Champions Tour um, and largely playing in the States. Um, how much time do you foresee you spending in in the States going forward? Well. It's quite a, a different scenario than playing on the regular PGA Tour because, um, well, under normal circumstances, they tend to play in like uh, sort of three-week sets, you know, three to four-week sets. So they play like three or four weeks and then they have two off and then play three or four and then another two off. But obviously, under this current situation, it's been slightly different in a sense that um, you, they just try and put tournaments together where they can and then obviously you're in a bubble the whole time so you know you're sort of confined to the hotel and the golf course there's no spectators I mean we get tested two three times a week so you know it's quite a different scenario to normal so but you know, at least we're playing, so let's mm. get on with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking to a few people on this podcast, and they talk about the sanitized bubbles that you go in and out of, and they say it's an absolute pain. But uh, as you say, at least they are playing. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you got to look at it, uh, other people. I mean, general public all over the world. I mean, some of them don't have jobs; they're not working; they're sitting at home. I mean, these are very testing times for everybody. I mean. At least we have an opportunity to make a living, yeah, which is a good thing, and a good living at that because you've been on well, you've been on Ernie's bag forever, and we'll get into that in just a bit. But wow, what a what a season, what an inaugural season he's had on the PGA Tour of Champions. Must be brilliant to watch all of that and be part of it. Yeah, it's been fantastic. I mean, the other thing is it's what they call a wraparound season, so basically we're only halfway through it. So you know, obviously the finale will come at the beginning of November next year. So it's still, you know, right up there. I mean, it's been a fantastic year. Probably could have won a few more than what he did. I mean, he won two, lost in a playoff and had, you know, quite a few other really good opportunities. I mean, we are hardly outside the top five or top ten most of the year. It's also slightly different in a sense that, you know, it's a bit of a new challenge. You're playing golf courses that you've never seen before whereas you know no disrespect but I mean if you look at Langer he's played all these golf courses or been playing them for the last whatever 10-12 years so it's slightly different in a sense that you've got to learn these new golf courses and it's a slightly different environment and different towns you go to so yeah it's been a bit of a challenge but in the same token it's been quite successful and Extremely enjoyable. Ricky, how would you describe the major differences between the normal tour, and in, in inverted commas, the PGA Tour and, and the Champions Tour? I mean, uh, you know, the guys are, are 50 plus. Uh, you get your young young oldies like Ernie, who've just turned 50, and then you've got the older guys like Langer, you mentioned. But uh, is, there, is there much, from a distance point of view, those golf courses you play on, and what else separates the two tours, do you think? Well, definitely, I think mean, the golf courses are shorter. The great thing for us old boys is there's only three rounds and there's no cut. 
So basically, um, you know, he's a Hall of Famer, so he only has to play one Pro-Am. Some of those guys have to play two Pro-Ams and then obviously there's three rounds, no cut. They're definitely shorter, so he has a big advantage in a sense that, you know, lengthwise, he still drives it or hits the ball further than most of these guys anyway. So that's a big advantage. From a from a caddy prep point of view, Ricky, you mentioned that you you're playing courses that you you know mostly haven't seen before. So is it almost back to basics for you? Almost your your early days on tour, where you're having to get out and do a lot more prep as a caddy? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, you got to go out and check the golf course. You know, do the yardages and you know get your game plan together. You know where you need to hit the ball and where not to hit it. You know, the other big thing that I noticed was that these old boys can still putt. So it doesn't matter how good you hit the golf ball. At the end of the day, you still got to get it in the hole, you know. And uh, these old boys, they can roll that rock, I can tell you that much. That that bit they haven't lost. Yeah. I mean, you think of like this, just this year, the star power that the, the tour has got. I mean, Phil Mickelson, Jim Furyk, Ernie, I think he's at 11 on the PGA Tour all-time money list. Bernard Lang has been dominating there for a while. We saw what he did at Augusta recently. So you talk about how you know competitive they are still in the senior tour. I mean, these guys these guys can still play. Oh, a question about that. I mean, the thing that surprised me a little bit is that, you know, somebody on that from the tour or from a marketing aspect hasn't climbed all over this because... The quality of players that are coming through, i.e., as you just said, Furyk, Mickelson, you know, you're going to have a few more coming through in the next couple of years. But um, from a marketing perspective, I, I can't believe somebody hasn't climbed all over this because I think generally the regular tour, you know, where you've got, you know, obviously Dustin and Kupka and Justin Thomas and Fowler, I think, um, you know, from a fan basis, a lot of the fans still relate to, you know, Woods, Mickelson, Els, you know, VJ, Furyk. And uh, I think they find that a lot more interesting to watch than just watching these big guys bomb it, like the Shambo now, 380 or whatever, and then just chip it out the rough onto the green. I mean, I still think there's a big marketplace out there for, from a fan's perspective, of following these old guys. So where it goes from, yeah, I'm not quite sure, but uh, let's see what happens. And, and Ricky, would you say that the, these guys are, whilst it's obviously super competitive and they all want to win, there's a slightly more relaxed edge to that, which which, mean, which means it might lend itself to a more, a greater sort of fan engagement element as well, the, these older guys? Oh, yeah, it's definitely, definitely more relaxed. <laughs> there's no question about that. Um, you know, they're still competitive, don't get me wrong. I mean... They're still out there to win, and I've always, you know, maintained, well, through my whole career that, you know, once you're a winner, you're always a winner. That never goes away. So, no, it's still very competitive, but definitely the environment, you know, and the atmosphere out there is definitely a lot more relaxed. The guys, you know, have a laugh and a joke, but, um, you know, when you're coming down the streets, they're still fighting each other to get that trophy. Uh, Ricky, before we get on to, to your career with Ernie and and everything that goes along with that. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where were you born? How did you, and how does one become a caddy? Well, I was born in uh, Halifax in Yorkshire. 
um, you know, my parents emigrated to South Africa in the late 60s. So basically, I grew up in South Africa. I spent nearly my whole life there. So I am a yapi to say the least. You, know? well, you sound like one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, but cricket was always my greatest love, you know. You know, Jeffrey Boycott was a, well, still is a very good friend of mine and he used to coach me and I used to bolt to him in the nets. And then I guess in my late teens when he said, nah, be, be nothing more than a good county cricketer. Like, that's when I gave up. <laughs> so... But I, I was playing golf and, you know, I got down to a four handicap. And and then uh, I guess sort of mid to, yeah, mid 80s, 83, 84, I just decided I wanted to go and see the world a bit. So a mate of mine he used to caddy for David Frost, Basil van Roy, and uh, he suggested, well, go and caddy in Europe. That way you'll travel around and, you know, get to see Europe. And uh, so... Hence, that's how I started. I did it for a couple of years, and then I thought, ah, you never know. You get it with a decent player, you might make some money out of this. So, uh, well, that's how I started. And then I just sort of jumped around a bit, getting for a few different guys, and then I got to work for Mark McNulty for a good five to six years, which was really good. And then, um, yeah, I guess back in 90, early 92, I worked for Ernie in Hamburg in Germany and we finished uh, second or third. And uh, then he offered me the job. So that basically I started. But, you know, in the early days in Europe, I mean, there were only maybe 30 or 40 of us that carried. So we used to double bag it in a sense that, uh, you know, you'd have your main guy. If you played in the morning, then as soon as you finish, went and carry for the other guy. And then if both of them make the cut, well, you pick the one who puts higher up on the leaderboard. <laughs> Gee, that's that's something so, that's something I'd never never heard, Ricky. That that you guys actually, like you said, double bagged it in, in the early days. So, so who are some of the other guys that you were carrying for at the time in those eighties? Well, Jeff Hawks, uh, he was a pretty boy. <laughs> um, yeah, I worked, you know, I worked for a lot of the South African guys, Levinson and Bayoki and, uh, you know, and then uh, I did work for Nick Price a couple of times and then hence I hooked up back with Nick Price in about 99, 2000 in one of my sabbaticals with Ernie. Because, you know, <laughs> we did have a lovely love-hate relationship. I mean, we made Richard Burton and... Uh, Liz Taylor. <laughs> Liz Taylor look like a bunch of novices, you know. I mean, I had more... <laughs> We had more comebacks than Frank Sinatra, to be quite honest. <laughs> like any good marriage. Yeah, well, you know. Hey, look, it's been successful, you know. I mean, I guess uh, we just have always had that chemistry, you know, that, that works. But sometimes, you know, I guess you can get on each other's nerves and it gets a bit stale sometimes, so you need to take a break. So that's pretty much the way it's been along the road. But when you met Ernie back in 1992... I mean, did you know it was going to be something special? Did you have an inkling? Yeah, funny enough, I approached him. I think it was in Bloemfontein. Might have been Skumon Park or somewhere. And, uh, you know, I was this cocky little shit. And, uh, yeah, it was this skinny Afrikaans boy who could barely speak English. And uh, I went up to him and I said, listen, if you want to win majors, I'm your man. (laughs) (laughs) Good on you, good on you. Anyway, it took about another year or two before we actually 
actually hooked up together. But uh, yeah, I got to say, I think um, down the road it's been quite uh, pretty successful. Your timing was pretty good, uh, Ricky. So if I recollect correctly, '92 was was quite a big year for Ernie. I think he. You certainly won the PGA here in South Africa, and that was just two years before, obviously, that uh, that maiden major triumph at Oakmont in 94. Yeah, I didn't really work for him in South Africa because back in those days he had Simon Masilo on the bag. And um, so basically in South Africa I was working for McNulty. You know, obviously when we left South Africa, then I started working for him in Europe. And I think it was... Probably end of 93 was where he first went outside of South Africa, which was uh, Dunlop Phoenix in Japan. And uh, then he moved on, obviously, 94 is when things started to happen. I mean, one in Dubai, we played with beat Greg Norman down the stretch there. And then, obviously, yeah, Oakmont later that year. And then I think there might have been a couple of more winners that year. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, that's basically when it started to really kick off. Do you remember how you guys celebrated that first win? Was it big? Well, um, yes, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm it told. Was, it, was a, it was a very loaded question because obviously Ernie's got a, got a rep for enjoying a party. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I mean, Oakmont was quite strange because... You know, if you remember, I mean, it went to a playoff, 18-hole playoff on a Monday. Yep. Yeah, Lauren Roberts. And, and Montgomery, Montgomery as well. Yes, correct. And um, I'll tell you, that has to probably be the hottest I've ever been on a golf course. I mean, it broke every record in, in Pennsylvania. And, um, I mean, it was over 100 degrees with 100% humidity. And I guess, I mean, he was so drained. I mean, I remember... <laughs> probably had a couple of beers and didn't really feel like drinking. I mean, you were so, after five rounds, it was mentally draining and, you know, exhausting. It was, But, I mean, after that, you know, maybe a couple of days later, it sort of kicked in and then I guess the party started rolling. I mean, there's been many of those down the road. <laughs> we, won't go to, we won't divulge too much about that. Oh, give us a little bit, man. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, I'll just do, I know one thing. I mean, there's been a lot of fluid come out of that claret jug, you know, after that, <laughs> after that open win in 2002 and 2012, to be quite honest. But go back to 94, Ricky, and, and, and take us through what was going through both of your minds at that time because this would have been a, a unique position for, for both you and Ernie. You closing in on a, on a very first major win. How, how were you feeling? Besides hot. I mean, I guess you were just in the zone in a, in a sense. But, I mean, because you're going into the unexpected, you know. I mean, he was never expected to go there and win. I mean, what was he, 24 years of age. Yeah. Um, but I remember we played with... Uh, Curtis Strange on the Saturday, I think, and the first nine holes. I mean, wow, he'd never seen golf like this. I mean, he just kept knocking the flag out, making every putt. You know, back in the day, I mean, he was the best putter in the world by a mile. And uh, I'll never forget coming off the golf course at the end of that round. I think that somebody interviewed Curtis Strange and he says, Well, today I played with the next god. I mean, that's how good it was. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, in the playoff, you know, I think, um, you know, in that second hole, it was a short par four. I can't remember. We made triple bogey there, I think. Triple or quadruple bogey. You know, and then 
Then he's like, ah, no, I should have missed that putt yesterday. I wouldn't be here today. I said, come on, just keep going. We've got these guys. And then from then on, he just played the most awesome golf and just hung in there. I mean, you know, he's, like I said, I mean, he's a winner. So, I mean, once you're a winner, you're always a winner. And I, once he got over that hurdle there, there was no stopping him. You know, Ricky, we could we could obviously run through the whole of Ernie's career, but I think obviously the you know the the, the four majors stand out, and from an, from an experience point of view, the, the things that you guys went through together, and you were on his bag for all four majors. If, if you look at '94 Oakmont, and then you you look at eight years later, or, or, or sorry, three years later, the next U.S. Open um, in '97. What, what, yeah, what congressional. You, yeah, now what, that that was that was also quite interesting from a point of view that we played the week before, Mr. Cut, and he wasn't swinging it well. So I mean. Then we got to practice because both courses were close together. It was the Kemper Open and then Congressional. And both courses are almost across the road from each other. So we spent that whole weekend on a range and doing yardages and getting every club down to, you know, down to the exact yard. Then I congressionally played awesome. I mean, again, putted unbelievably. And, uh, you know, I guess... Again, it wasn't expected because it didn't have much confidence going in there, especially missing the cut the week before. You know, you can tell when a guy's got it and he steps up to the mark, you know, and he's always had it. So, you know, 202 at Muirfield, again, wasn't playing well or swinging well going in there, but he just sort of found it, you know. Um, again, put a lot of time and effort in on the range, but I think 2012 was extremely special. I mean, he loved that golf course. I mean, I think in the, in the past, we finished second and third day to Lehman and Deval. And um, it was justice, really, at the end of the day that he won there. Because I think if he'd have gone through his whole career only winning three majors, that would never that wouldn't have been good, you know. And a lot of people said, you know, well, Adam Scott handed it to him. But at the end of the day, what you need to look at is that he created the pressure yeah. by shooting that whatever it was, 30, 31 on the back nine. He created the pressure for Adam Scott to make those mistakes. And people don't understand how hard it is to win a major. You know, there's only four of them every year. And the pressure is so intense. You know, you've got, I don't know, whatever, 500 million people around the world watching you. Mm. You know, and you've, you've only got 30 seconds to make a decision. And it's easy as an armchair viewer when you sit there and you say, oh, how could he do this? How could he do that? I mean, I know this watching cricket or rugby or football. You know, you scream and shout at the telly, what the fuck is this guy doing? <laughs> but it's the pressure. And people don't understand what that pressure is like. But, I mean, you had a feeling... I think it was like 40th, ranked 40th in the world or something going into that 2012 Open. But tell us about how you went and looked at the course and how you had a feeling that he could do something special that week. A couple of weeks prior to that, I mean, we played Olympic Club in San Francisco. We played the US Open there. And he was playing unbelievable. And I gave him the wrong club on uh, on a past three. I think it was a ninth hole. And we made bogey there. And, you know, that's, then he lost momentum. Anyway... I have a mate in the UK who loves to punt on golf and uh, I phoned him up. I said, listen, you need to back this guy. He's that close. He's going to win. I'm telling you. And plus it was on a course, Lytham, where he, he, he knew the course well. Anyway, a couple of weeks before, I took a drive over there because it's about an hour from my house. 
And he phoned me, funny enough, while I was driving over. And he's like, hey, what are you doing? And I said, no, I'm going to go check out the golf course, which I do on a major if I'm close by that I can get access to. I'll go a couple of weeks before because it's quiet and there's nobody else around. Anyway, I went over there, went into the RNA office and, you know, I asked him if I could walk the course. I said, no problem. So it was just me and, you know, the guys putting up the tents and the stands and whatever. Anyway, they made a couple of changes, some new tea boxes and I think one or two bunkers. Anyway, driving back that evening at about 8 o'clock at night and he phoned me and he said, what do you think? I said, listen, mate, you just play your game. They will not beat you on this golf course. Not beat you. And, you know, starting out the week, he was playing well, but he hit the ball great the first couple of days. Just didn't make any putts. And then, obviously, you know, he knows he's, you know, he's mentally strong. He knew if he just hung in there, hung in there, hung in there, something was going to happen. And funny enough, on a Saturday night, we had uh, a bite to eat and a couple of drinks, and he said to me, I've got a feeling about tomorrow. I've just got a feeling about tomorrow. And, you know, he just played the most awesome golf on that back nine, you know, made a three or four really good putts, and especially the one on 18. Yeah. And then, you know, it's like I'm saying, he created the pressure for Scotty to cock it up, you know. Yes, he made mistakes. I mean, he hit it in bunkers that he shouldn't have hit it in, but it's all about the pressure. And people don't really fully understand what that pressure is. Everybody in life has pressure. It's just different levels of pressure. And it's how you deal with that pressure. And that's basically, to sum it up, that's what happened that day. But did your mate take your advice and put some cash on him? (laughs) Listen, he was running around all over the place. He got him at 25. He got him at 50. He got him at 60. (laughs) He had had even his kids running around going to bookies, putting the money on because the bookies wouldn't take money. (laughs) So basically he retired of that. Well, I wish. I wish he'd have given me a kickback. I think he won about 30,000 quid. Wow. Whilst you're talking majors, there's no doubt that uh, for South African golf fans, and, and I'm sure for Ernie himself, you know, whenever the Masters comes around every year, there's there's a sense of of what might have been Ernie having gone close. I mean, particularly if I think of 04 when Mickelson won, uh, the Masters really is, is the one that got away. Do you guys talk about it or, or ever reminisce about uh, what it would have been like to, to have had a green jacket? The real kick in the nuts was in 2004 when Mickelson held that putt on 18. I mean, there were other chances, but the killer was 204. I mean, I was in tears that day. I mean, I could not believe it because he just played, Ernie played the most unbelievable golf there. And, you know, starting out his career, you would have thought out of all four majors, the one he was going to win was Augusta. And it's just so sad that at the end of the day, he's never going to win it. I mean, that's very sad that it's come to that. But, you know, what can you say? I mean, at least he got two US Opens and two Open Championships. But, yeah, that 204 was the killer. I mean, that whole year was hard. You know, going back, there was that one. Then uh, US Open, we played with the Tiff in the last round. And, and shot 80. Shot 80. 82 or something. Um, Then, you know, the Open Championship, we lost to that bloody Todd Hamilton. In the playoff, yeah. Yeah. And then um, at Whistling Straits, the three-putted the 18th green to miss the playoff. I mean, he could have won all four majors in one year and didn't win anything. 
I mean, that was that was really hard to take, you know. Talk to us a little bit about Ernie's demeanor because he's got the nickname The Big Easy and it looks like he is he's so super chilled and nothing gets to him, but is it, in fact, the opposite? <laughs> <laughs> I'll make no comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, like... You know, I'm not saying he's, he's bad-tempered or anything like that. Obviously, stuff does get to you when, when you've been so close and have missed out. Yeah, it just goes back to the same point I made earlier. I mean, I know I sound like a broken record, but I mean, you know, once you're a winner, you're always the winner. And he's he's highly, highly competitive, you know. And God, probably got the greatest swing in the game. Obviously, your career... I think with a lot of these guys, he's, he's judged on majors. And I mean, you know, you can argue the toss. If Tiger wasn't around, how many majors would he have won? He probably would have won 12. But yeah, I mean, he's he's highly competitive, you know, and he wants to win. And when you don't win, it's hard to take. But, you know, you bite the bullet, you stand up and you go again. So like you say, Ricky, you know, a golf is measured by his, his major triumphs, but from a, and we've mentioned Ernie's four majors, but uh, from a caddy point of view, is there a time or a tournament, major or, or otherwise, where you thought that was your best performance, where you really produced your best as a caddy to get the, the most out of your player? I don't know, maybe. I mean, I just never look at it from that point of view. I mean, there to do a job, but my job is to try and get him over the line. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you're only as, well, I think you're only as good as the guy you work for. But I mean, like I said before, we have a good chemistry. And, uh, you know, when when he was on, or it was all going well, I, we were just like autopilot, you know. We were both thinking the same thing, you know, and he just needed confirmation from me. But there have been times where I've made a call that have been right and there's obviously times I've made the call where it's been wrong but that's part and parcel of the job you know so yeah I guess there's been times where I think Jesus I've done a shit job today and there's been times where I think I've done a good job so the hardest part of the job is when he's not playing well is to pick the guy out and you've got to be on him the whole time I mean when he's playing well the job's pretty easy Do Do you have some techniques you go to Ricky besides saying you know just come on man Put yourself together. Are you are you are you a, are you a tough love kind of kind of guy? Are you a, uh, does it depend or does it depend on the situation? Well, it depends on the situation. You know, there's sometimes you know we I know when it's time to back off, and there's no then there's times I know when I need to step in. I'll probably get my ear chewed off for it, but uh, you know, caddying for me is the easiest thing in the world is to be a yes man. Is it a six iron? Yes. Is it a five iron? Yes. But, you know, you've got to have the kahunas sometimes to stand up there and say, no, it's not that, it's this. Because sometimes I think when the adrenaline's pumping, you know, sometimes they tend to get a little ahead, a little bit ahead of themselves. And also when the adrenaline's flowing, you know, you tend to hit the ball 5 to 10% further, you know, and you need to take all that into account. And Ricky, how involved do you get with, with Ernie? I'm talking about, forget club suggestions and all that. Uh, I, does he... Sometimes ask you for a read on a putt or do you generally stay out of it and just let him do his thing? You know, he's always been a great reader of greens. Unbelievable. One of the best reader of greens I've ever seen in my life. So he would only ever, ever ask me if he had no idea. So basically I step back. You know, from a, from a club aspect, yeah, I'll step in. But when it comes to putting, I just basically sit on the sidelines. 
you mentioned Tiger and, and how many times Ernie finished runner-up, but it was just, you know, just happened to have played during that era. From your perspective, what was it like watching Tiger go through that streak and being so close to it all? Obviously amazing. I mean, the guy's a freak of nature. I mean, he was just a genius. I mean, absolute genius. But I know for a fact, I mean, you know, we play with a guy, I don't know, a thousand times maybe. He was, he, he only feared, he only ever feared one guy and it was in. And I know that for a fact because Stevie Williams told me that. So, you know, I mean, he was never worried about Mickelson or BJ or anybody. The only guy he ever feared was Els. And some of those interactions whilst you going head-to-head down the stretch with, with, with Tiger, Ricky, what, what are your sort of recollections of that and, and, and his, his intense focus and, and, and able to close something out, Tiger? Is that something that stood out? Well, you know, I had this conversation with somebody a couple of days ago, funny enough, you know, and I tried to figure out, you know, Tiger the whole time, the whole time. And then finally the penny dropped in a sense that, you know, Tiger only ever played the golf course. The only time he ever played against anybody was maybe the back nine on Sunday afternoon where he was having to play catch-up and change his game plan or, you know, his strategy. But I think too many times guys tried to play against Tiger. Now, it's like anything in life. I remember growing up with the Wanderers in South Africa. When he went out and played and if you shot 74, the next day your objective was to shoot 72 or better that score. Okay, and too many times, all these other guys try to play against Tiger, and they all folded like a cheap Chinese deck chair. Now, Els, he stood up to Tiger, but he just said, you know, Tiger would hit that one shot or make that clutch putt. I mean, if you remember back at um, at Fancourt during the President's Cup, the par three. I mean, I said to Ernie, well, when Tiger hit his first putt and then he left it, whatever he had it. 10-footer or whatever, 12-footer. I said to him, no way, you can't make this putt. I mean, because I know we were there in the morning, had that putt. And, you know, the guy just stepped up to the plate and sure enough, rolled it in. But, you know, Ernie made it on top of it. You know, so, I don't know, it's just unfortunate that in life there's eras where you come up against a certain individual. I mean, I guess Tom Weisskopf during Jack Nicklaus's era, I mean... They come along once in a blue moon. It was just unfortunate that he was in that era. Of course, Woods, as you say, was was an absolute freak. But also, he he took things to another level. You think of the intense focus that was on Woods and anyone that was happened to be playing with him. I mean, not only from the media perspective and coverage, but the crowds and the people following you around the golf course. I, I how did how did you deal with all of that? Once you get out there, you get in the zone. I mean, you don't really notice these people or you know once you're in the zone it's like tunnel vision so you just you basically focus on what you're doing but he he did bring a different aura to the game I mean there's no question about that I mean these guys wouldn't be making the money they're making today if it wasn't for Tiger Woods I mean that's a given that's an absolute given I mean he just changed the face of the game forever and I don't think not in my lifetime. I don't think you're ever going to see a player like that. He also had that fear factor that he created, you know, which today these youngsters, there's no fear factor out there. They just go out there and bomb it. But he had this aura about him that was just unbelievable. I mean, just amazing. 
Ricky, if we if we look at caddying as a whole, is there is there something out there that uh, that perhaps the average golf fan doesn't know or get an appreciation of? I mean, we mentioned earlier in our chat about you you know walking the course uh, three weeks before a major with regards to that 2012 uh, Open Championship, but uh, just how much prep goes into um, your job that, that a golf fan wouldn't see? Well, yeah, I mean it's a lot more involved than you know, what people see. I mean, you know, when you're out there prepping this golf course, I mean, you want to know where to miss it, where not to miss it. You know, do you need to be short? You don't want to be long. You know, there's other things you take into account is altitude. Obviously, most of the year we play pretty much sea level, but obviously when, let's say, we go to Johannesburg or Sun City, you know, you work at a, probably about anything between 5 and 10% because obviously the ball flies further. You also take into account the atmosphere when it's hot. If it gets really hot, the ball's going to travel. When it gets cold, the ball doesn't go anywhere. You know, there's a lot of things that come into it. You know, wind, you know, on some golf courses, you can get in a tree-lined golf course where wind comes, but it comes from all directions, like Augusta. I mean, you can stand there and one minute it's down, next minute it's into. I mean, the crazy thing is, you get between 11 and 12 at Augusta. I mean, you look at the flag on 11, it's blowing straight downwind and the flag on 12 is coming into you. But, you know, you've got to take all these things into account. So, yeah, it is a lot more involved and giving yardages and pulling a club is sometimes the easiest thing of the job. But it's also, you know, knowing how your, your man's mind works, knowing when to say certain things and knowing when to keep it trap shut. So, you know, you're, you're pretty much, you know, not just the bag carrier, but you're the butler, you're the psychologist, you're, you're everything. And Ricky, give us a sense of, of the pre-round routine. So, you know, say, argument's sake, Ernie's off at 8 o'clock in the morning. Kind of what does your morning look like then from a prep point of view and what do you need to pack that bag with? If you're playing at 8, you get there probably around about 6.30, you know, I'll make sure there's enough balls in a bag. I normally have about 12 to 15 balls because I had a theory that Sam Torrance once told me that there's only one birdie in every golf ball. And when I told Ernie this back in 92, he says, oh, you're talking a lot of shit. <laughs> anyway, when, when we shot 61 around Dubai, you know, he kept changing the ball after a birdie and then he finally believed me. So, <laughs> yeah, I normally have about 12 to 15 balls in there which I've marked probably the evening before with a line across the sort of name. You know, I make sure there's fruit and bars in the bag and obviously, depending on the weather, I might have a couple of extra towels in there, two sets of waterproofs. Then he'll bring a couple of sweaters with him. So you've got basically everything but the kitchen sink in there, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I then normally we go putt for maybe 10 minutes, then go to the driving range, hit balls for about 40 minutes maybe, and then chip and hit a few bunker shots and then go back to the putting green and then putt for another 10 minutes before we tee off. That's pretty much the routine. If it hadn't been Ernie, who would you have liked to have caddied for? And I ask this because you know I've read that you're particularly fond of, of Adam Scott. I know him and Ernie are great mates. Would, would he have been someone that you'd like to have caddied for? Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. He's such a good guy. Great player. You know, I mean, I was fortunate that I had two spells with Nicky Price too, who was just an absolute gentleman. Great guy, great player. 
But I mean, he was towards the end of his career when I went to work for him. But the modern day players, yeah, probably Adam Scott. Uh, I worked for Westwood a few times and Darren Clark. But modern day players, yeah, probably Scotty. So Ricky, those are the nice guys on tour. Who are the not so nice guys? <laughs> There's a lot of nice guys, but there's also a few out there that are <laughs> a bit indifferent, you know. I mean, I guess it takes all sorts to make this world turn around, you know. But, uh, you know, there's some guys out there that are just, yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, you listen to the commentators. I mean, there isn't one bad oak out there. There's not one bad guy on tour. Uh, well, I beg to differ there. <laughs> Ricky, uh, m- much is made of the you know the old uh, you know the perception out there that the caddy gets ten percent of, of the cut, and I know there's there's various models you know and various players have, have different deals with different caddies. Um, you know, if if there's a placing, a top ten or a top five or a win or a, if you make the cut, is there kind of a, a standard model that, that kind of it averages out at that that you guys all accept as as as, as the going rate uh, on tour? Well, to be honest with you, today I have no idea what the deals are that these guys do. I mean, clearly I have my own deal with Ernie. But, I mean, back in the day, you know, the guy would get the wage for the week. And I guess the standard rate was five, seven and a half, top 10 and 10% on a win. I think that's moved on a bit now. I think you'll get some guys that are on maybe a yearly retainer. And then I think probably the standard going now is probably – Seven and a half and ten percent, or eight percent and ten percent, or eight and a half percent across the board. But I'm not a hundred percent sure. I mean, a lot of these guys, you know, do their own deals, and you know, obviously, you'll get some guys that are more generous than other guys. I mean, that's just a fact of life. But uh, I think the trend is probably still the same where you'll find guys on a weekly wage and then a percentage. But what those percentages are today, I'm not so sure. I mean, I'm a bit out of the loop when it comes to that. Yeah, just don't be unlucky enough to pull Matt Kuchar's bag. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. You get 500 bucks yeah, or, or a pie and a coke. <laughs> Ricky, as we, as we wrap things up, but tell us a little bit about uh, Stevie Williams and when he was on Tiger's bag and the kind of money he was making. There was always that talk that he was the highest paid sportsman in New Zealand. I mean, he was making obscene cash for obvious yeah, reasons. I mean, I'm, I'm not 100% sure what he... I know he, he made a ton of money, but apparently Tiger's not the most generous guy when it comes to paying, so I'm led to believe but, uh, you know, don't quote me on that because I don't really know. It's just from what I heard. But, no, I mean, you know, Stevie was a slightly different character. He never socialised with anybody. He never really spoke to anybody. I mean, I've known him forever. So, him and I always had a punt. I mean, you know, when it came to the spring box against the All Blacks, you know, and then finally one day I did take his money and I made Tiger sign the $100 bill. So... <laughs> <laughs> That was quite cool. The Tiger, Tiger couldn't wait to give it to me and he couldn't wait to sign it because he'd love to see Stevie giving away some money for a change. <laughs> Talking about betting and stuff, do you, do caddies ever have a have a little something on the side between themselves on the performance of their players? I think some of them do. I mean, I'm not a gambler, so I don't know. I don't do that, but uh, I'm sure one or two of them do. Or they'll have a saver, you know, like if they're going into a playoff. I'm sure they'll have a bit of a saver where the other guy will say, well, listen, whoever wins gives the other one an extra couple of grand. I don't know. 
Ricky, is, uh, you mentioned Steve Williams, and obviously he was on Tiger's bag for so many years and, and, and built quite a big profile having been that, that face next to Tiger for so many years. But uh, is, is the age of the celebrity caddy over? I mean, we mentioned Steve Williams, you know, Bones Mackay was on Phil Mickelson's bag for many years and, and, and he had, had a bit of a profile and has now gone into commentary. You think Sunnison and Faldo? You know, the, yeah, another profile. I see Joe, Joey LaCarva's now on Tiger's bag. You look at the high-profile caddies that are that are kind of in the in the media spotlight more. Do you think that, is that a thing of the past? Though I'm not saying sure. Yeah, probably. You know, you sort of got noticed more when you were the high-profile guy. But I don't know. A lot of these guys now bring their mates out. You know, their brother-in-law, their cousin, or whatever. You. But for me, I've always tried to stay out of the limelight if I can. You know, I mean, like I said, show up, shut up. And just do the job. You know, the player's the superstar, not the caddy. <laughs> He's the one who hits the golf ball. But I guess, you know, when your player's successful and, you know, you're always on the TV or you're always in the limelight, I guess you get noticed. But um, I prefer, to, if I can, to stay out the way. <laughs> it's a lot better that way. <laughs> Lastly, Ricky, I mean, you've you've travelled all over the world. You've been to the most amazing golf courses. Your favourite, your favourite one to walk, and and you think, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we would default to something like a Pebble Beach or or Augusta or St Andrews. But of all of the courses you've seen, your favourite? Well, that's a bit uh, difficult to answer in a sense that you know they're all unique in their own way. I mean. Augusta's a special place. I didn't like walking it. There's too many bloody hills there for me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something you don't pick I'm, up I'm on much, the TV. Yeah, I know. Uh, I much prefer St. Andrews. It's flat. <laughs> but, I mean, I did do I did do some coverage for Supersport once on Augusta, and I took my yardage book in. And, I mean, when I walked out, I mean, I had so many phone calls. I mean, I remember Clive Rice called me and Daryl Cullinan and Sean Pollock and said, Wow. For the first time, I have some inclination what this golf course is all about. Because, you know, I gave them the elevation levels. And you, you just don't see that on TV, you know. It's it's a shame, really. But, Jesus, that's a monster to walk that place. Well, Ricky, we thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's been great hearing some insight into your career as a caddy and largely on the bag of Ernie Els, one of South Africa's uh, biggest sports stars of the past 30 years. I'd just like to say one thing quickly. It's great to see some of the talent you've got coming through there. I mean, you know, this Nienaber and Jaden Schaefer, I mean, I think you've got some good talent coming through now, yeah. uh, which is a good thing. I mean, we've always produced good talent for the size of that country and the population that plays golf. It's just unfortunate that some of them haven't, you know, continued on you know, they've threatened, but they haven't really closed it out. But it looks like you've got some great talent coming through there. Yeah, we yeah, do. future looks bright, doesn't it? Yeah. Ricky, yeah. it's been really cool to catch up with you and uh, put those feet up, relax those legs. Uh, I'm sure Ernie wants you on the bag for a bit longer. So we wish you well yeah. medically. And, uh, and yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for chatting to us yeah. along on the short of it. It's been good. great. Yeah, good luck. Uh, good luck this, this week with, with the operation. Thanks very much. I can't wait to get over there and get some sunshine because the snow's coming this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Go well, Ricky. Thank you Thanks, very much. Thanks, Ricky. All the best, man. All right. Take care. There it is. A win for the ages. The long and short of it. Simon Hill and Dylan Rogers. Thanks for listening. We'd ask our friends, except we don't have any. So please like and rate this podcast. Until next time.